Hi folks and welcome to our Budget 2023 coverage. This is the conversation, the first conversation that took place last week with uh, experts on the area of just how much is in the government's kitty and what can they afford to throw at what we're calling the cost of living crisis. There are also two other um, podcasts already recorded and out there, one about how people are at breaking point and another on homelessness and renters specifically. So all of those are available now on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack as well as conversations that were recorded in the last few hours with Ono Brin of Sinn Féin and Richard Boyd Barrett of People Before Profit, all of them hitting the, the members' feed as quickly as I can turn them around. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Please consider joining us. It's the only way we keep this show on the road. And one more time, please go to patreon.com forward slash tortoise Enjoy the podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today for a discussion on all things happy and uh, budget by some guests we've had lots of times, which I know some of our listeners' favorites, and also some new guests as well. Joined back in the podcast by Michael Taft, who is economist with SIP2. And Michael, um, unfortunately, can't see him, is looking, as I described earlier, ethereal by this sort of, um, it's hard to describe it, behind the screen, which is sort of misty-like, as if Michael has passed on to the other world and is speaking to us from there. But he will be brilliant, as always. And the other, Tom McDonald, great economist, uh, co-director of the Nevin Economic Research Institute. Again, listeners will be familiar with. And someone new who's Suzanne Rogers, who is Policy and Research Officer with Social Justice Ireland. Suzanne, Michael, Tom, it's great to have you back and have you on Reboot Republic. Thank you. Thank you. So will we go to Suzanne first in terms of the budget? And as I said, all things happy and all things misery. These are very, very difficult times um, in some ways um times that we have not seen since the likes of well we we don't know are we going back to the 1980s or 70s in terms of how households are being utterly hammered and of course the hardest hit uh being those um who have least resources what do social justice ireland see or what is your analysis of where we're at now in terms of poverty rising poverty levels um, and where do you think it's going to head to this winter with the cost of living crisis I think it's it's that uncertainty piece. I think really is the key, isn't it? I mean, as a as, as a child of the seventies and coming of age through the eighties, and and thinking back to those recessions and leaving school in nineteen eighty seven into a very I suppose a very different Ireland. So we we've changed so much in that mm. space of time that there is a part of me that does worry. You know, poverty back then is very different to poverty now. But we are facing it, I think, to a really, really difficult winter. And even just, I suppose, some of the headlines that have gone through my head this week, combined gas and electricity bills for the average household, you're looking at an increase, now an extra, an increase of an extra two grand a year just to be able to put the immersion on, just to be able to boil the kettle, top up your phone. That's about 40 quid a week extra onto your bills. So that's fine if you've got wiggle room in your budget, yeah. but for definitely for anybody on a fixed income, anybody on a low income, again, all the research has come out. It's the older households. It's the low work intensity households. It's the rural households. They're the ones who are feeling inflation most. So 
yes, I suppose, I, I, even like when people kind of talk about a cost of living crisis, I kind of think not everybody's in crisis. I live in Dublin. I go up and down Grafton Street. I might cut through Brown Thomas. There's no crisis in the Louis Vuitton counter in Brown Thomas. I yeah. can tell you that for nothing. So our focus has to be on those households who don't have the extra 40 quid to be able to put the heat on, who don't have the extra couple of quid that their shopping has gone up. And I mean, nobody nobody knows more about how to budget than somebody who's on 208 euro a week. So this whole business of shopping around all of that, like that's, we've gone past that. And I suppose even to start, I've gone off at a million tangents now, but you've got something no, no. called a, a poverty premium. So again, those who are on low fixed incomes end up paying more for the same products. They don't, they're not able to avail of putting, you know, 24 toilet rolls and it's six, two litres of water into the boot of the car or a special offer on tinned goods or any of those are paying more for their refuse, they're paying more because they're on prepay meters, all of those things. So that's the sort of world that we're living in now, I think, yeah. is, is very concerning about where the next couple of months are going to go. And I'm very conscious as well, what we the headline there day before to say, that uh, tax revenues, we're looking at 6.3 billion surplus, which again is ahead of estimation. So what we see in the budget will be political decisions, not necessarily economic or financial decisions. So we have to bear that in mind as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a vital point. Um, the question of, of what resources are available. Um, and just before, before you go there, um, and I'll go on to Tom and Michael, um, I don't know if you saw the Ireland Thinks poll in the Sunday Independent um, on the weekend, which really showed, I think, the extent of the divided Ireland in many ways that the answer to a question, are you struggling to pay your bills? And 48%, so almost half of people said they were struggling to pay their bills. But 46% of people said they weren't struggling to pay their bills. That really is quite a divide, isn't it, in terms of the experience of cost of living? And I prices. think that, that is it. So I've been on the radio now for the last couple of days talking about our pre-budget submission and our core ask for the raise of €20 Euro in core, self, core social welfare rates. And the first thing is, it's a disincentive to work, ah, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I could do an hour on just that. But it is, it's exactly that conversation that the only people who think social welfare is adequate are those who've never had to survive on it. The only people who think that our social welfare rates are a disincentive to work are, again, people who've never been in that situation. So anybody who's in Brown Thomas at the moment, and best of luck to you, buying a, you know, a Louis Vuitton or a Gucci. I mean, there was waiting lists I could see as I was cutting through. Um, You're talking about Brown Thomas a bit too much <laughs> now. A bit too much. I like it. <laughs> Other high-end establishments are available, but, you know, just to kind of give a flavour, if you're, like, you know, I often think as well of, say, somewhere like Chesterfield Avenue in the Phoenix Park, it's just under five kilometres. You've got Castle Knock at one end and you've got sort of, you know, Parkgate Street and Cunningham Road and down onto the quays at the back of Euston Station at the other end. It's five kilometres, two exceedingly different lifestyles, two exceedingly different worldviews at either end of that five kilometres. So if you're at one end, you're not worried about your bills. If you are at the other end, you are worried about your bills. And it's the people who aren't worried about their bills don't get it. They don't understand it. It's this whole conversation about it's an individual failing if you can't manage your money. It's an individual failing if you can't find adequate work. I mean, again, another headline during the week was talking about the shortage of teachers. 
it's in the papers of the weekend, 80,000 teachers missing across five countries in Europe that can't fill the positions. And one school was saying that they were looking for a biology teacher for four hours a week. Who's going to apply for that job? You know, yeah, so it's, yeah. it's, 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 you're but, looking at the system as opposed to yeah, individuals. Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, the housing crisis really adding to that as well. Um, just bringing in Tom McDonnell, um, co-director of NERI, is that a surprise to your and how significant of a change is it in terms of that figure there? Now, I know it only is an opinion poll, but it must be reflecting reality in terms of almost half the population struggling to pay their bills and essentially the other half not struggling. Are we that divided now? Is it really half and half or something approximate to that, that there's that many people struggling and then, you know, a significant proportion of people doing okay then? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm not surprised really. I mean, the ESRI came out with a figure of 42% of people potentially experiencing fuel poverty. So the 48% figure aligns very closely with that. And I suppose the first the first point to make, obviously, in, in terms of this shopping around stuff, of course, that's a, an offensive infantilization of low-income households by people uh, who've never had to worry. Uh, but the first thing to say is, the budgetary finances are in an excellent position. There is more than enough money to ensure coming out of the budget that all household that no household in Ireland is put into deprivation. There is more than enough money. So if the government choose not to do that, then they have made a political choice to cast people into poverty. Uh, and I think it's important to, to say that at, at the at the outset. We are looking for, for the bottom 20% of households, we're looking at inflation of around 10% this year, and it might be slightly higher. In fact, it's already 10%. It, it might hit 12 for some. Uh, next year, we're looking at inflation of around 4%. Again, possibly slightly higher for low-income households. So we have to think of those as the kind of figures, because this is budget 2023, which is going to have those extra uh, inflationary pressures on top again. And therefore, this this nonsense about once-off measures is is uh, absurd. I mean, they are only relevant and they only make sense if you actually think prices are going to fall next year. Because if they're not going to fall next year, then they're, then they're just as high as they were. And that means you have to do that once-off measure again, which means effectively you're continuing to do it. So um, it's, it makes no sense as a budgetary policy. Inflation-proof, all of the welfare rates, the minimum wage, all of the income thresholds, everything should increase by 10% at least. Um, and then beyond that, we can look at reducing the cost, expanding them. And uh, the worst thing that we could do is cut income taxes. Uh, and yet that is what the government are focusing on. Uh, and to me, it's um, it's the last thing this country needs. We don't need trustonomics. Uh, we do not need tax cuts for high-income households. So if we come out of this and they haven't inflation-proof welfare rates, but they've cut income taxes for the very highest, well, I think that would be a damning, uh, a damning testimony as to what this government is really about. We shall see in a few weeks' time. And just in terms of that broad, you know, you, the statement you made there that we have enough money, the government has enough money um in terms of that surplus of of um tax receipts to ensure that nobody is in deprivation what sort of money do you think they should be investing and what do you think we should do with that additional money that's available specifically well i suppose the 
the first thing that you would have to do is protect the real incomes of households that are likely to experience uh, poverty or deprivation uh, or likely to have an increased chance for, for sure. That means the first thing that you have to do is that you have to index all welfare rates, all income thresholds and the minimum wage against projected inflation uh, for the 2022-2023 period, taking into account what you gave in 2022 as an increase. That's the very first thing that you do. And that can be done for the bones of two billion or so. Um, beyond that... Just compare that. What are they likely uh, you, to do? What are the indications that they're likely to do? Well, it's not entirely clear. And, and to be fair, I don't think I don't believe they've actually decided. I think what they're likely to do is they're likely to maybe throw 15 quid onto most of the welfare rates. They might do 20 for the pension. Uh, they're likely to have some modest measures to, to cut the cost of basic services. They'll do something in terms of registration fees for college. Uh, they may increase free GP care for another year, kind of tinkering at the margins, that type of thing. But they will, they'll probably extend the public transport 20% cut. Uh, but but uh, they're also likely to, to do something on the energy side. Now, we don't know if that's going to be a universal uh, cash transfer to everyone in the audience, no matter, how, no matter how poor or how rich you might be, yeah. or what the needs of your family might be, or whether it'll be something along the lines of uh, a price cap, um, or alternatively, uh, and this is something that you know people have been discussing, is can you have kind of a tiered energy structure so that lower income households can, can stay on a lower rate, and then it becomes increasingly more expensive? Do you have a windfall tax? Uh, do you have some other form of regulation? Um, there are a lot of different ways that you can go here. Um, ultimately, most of them involve the state actually stepping in to subsidize, and that would be very costly. Um, what they're also likely to do in the budget is they're likely to um, increase the standard rate cutoff point for income tax. So that would be essentially a tax cut for medium and high earners. Um, so obviously that would be regressive uh, and totally unnecessary. Um, it would be marginally inflationary in the sense of the type of goods that rich people spend their money on, such as houses. So it, it would push up house prices. It wouldn't necessarily be inflationary in many other respects because these people don't need the money. In many cases, at least the high earners don't, and therefore it'll just add to their savings. And, and, and maybe, maybe, they'll, maybe they'll have a, an, extra, an extra holiday in 2023. Uh, but it would be a complete, uh, a complete just explain waste of money how that would benefit. Point. Just explain how that would benefit medium and high income high income earners more. Sure. Uh, well, so basically, we have a, a standard rate cutoff point, which only affects people earning uh, a certain amount. In other words, what we're saying is, you increase the amount that you pay 20 percent on before you hit the forty percent mark. So anyone who doesn't pay forty percent already would get zero from any income tax cut of that nature whereas everyone above it would get 200 euro for every thousand to increase the threshold because it's moving from 20 percent to 40 percent no matter how yeah. much you're earning so if you felt that you wanted to give something back to middle income earners because they weren't necessarily benefiting from say the welfare rate uplifting or perhaps an improvement in uh, the working family payment for lower income households then you could do that, of course, because as we said, close to half of households are, are, are worried about money. And you could argue that maybe some of those people kind of on the lower end of that, earning in the high 30,000s, even the low 40,000s, perhaps need something as well beyond yeah. what happens on the energy side. But if you do that, 
you can you, you can kind of uh, wash it out by increasing taxes on higher earners to, to ensure that they don't benefit. So we would be strongly of the view that there should be no tax cuts for higher earners, higher earners in particular, and that if there is to be some kind of increase in in the bans, that that should be you know compensated for by a higher USC rate um, or higher taxes on capital and wealth, and, yeah. and the elimination of some tax breaks. Yeah. Because it's it's just a waste of money. We have six point seven billion to spend. You can turn around, give give income tax to higher earners, and then say there wasn't enough money to help out people that are actively experiencing deprivation, or are likely to over the next two or three months. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting and a really important point. That in terms of you know the the tax breaks, and again, of course, there's lots of other ways that you could help middle income earners, for example, around childcare costs and actually taking action on things like that and of course housing as well rents and everything um rather than underpinning and reducing the tax base which of course we know is a fundamental problem that we can't invest in main public services thanks tom i'll come back to you on that michael uh michael ethereal taft in terms of the i suppose broad macroeconomic picture here could you paint us for a little bit um what your you know what could government really do here in terms of the figures and what because there's talk about you know money should be put aside into a rainy day fund you know again these once off measures you know versus you know investing in current money you know what are the parameters what is the real money the government has could potentially put into things that Tom has talked about and Suzanne has talked about that wouldn't blow our fiscal uh, prudence but, you know, would actually do some, something very significant? Well, the first thing is to recognize that this figure of the government has about 6.7 billion euros to spend, either direct expenditure or tax cuts, 6.7 billion euros. Yeah. Uh, this is this this is a figure that's just pulled out of the, not quite pulled out of the air, but this is something that the government itself is imposing on itself. Uh, it has nothing to do with the fiscal rules. Uh, it, one could argue it has nothing to do uh, with uh, trying to address a uh, crisis, certainly in the short to medium term. Uh, the government's relationship to the fiscal rules has been very funny. I think everybody will remember during the fiscal treaty uh, debates, uh, if we didn't have these fiscal rules, uh, all sorts of terrible uh, plagues would descend upon us. And then in about 2018, 2019, the government turned around and said that following the fiscal rules would be dangerous. Yeah. And so they were going to take another path. Now they've got this 5% cap on permanent spending, uh, you know, can increase no more than 5%. That's just, you know, it's it, in one sense, it's a fabrication uh, that the government is using for itself. It does have a substantial, more, a substantial amount of money to spend. It can actually spend up to about... Uh, equivalent of a 1% deficit uh, in, in the budget and still stay within the fiscal rules, which have been suspended. They will be brought back in, but because that's of right. the crisis suspended during COVID as well, the fiscal rules. That's right. Uh, and they had to be because governments all across Europe were spending so much, investing so much to keep their economies going. Uh, they'll probably get another postponement. Uh, and we also know, of course, that fiscal rules are only followed by... Um, Good little boys and girls uh, like Ireland and ignored by countries like France and Germany who actually understand that to run an economy, you uh, don't run it by stupid abstract fiscal rules. 
Yeah, funny that. Um, uh, they, they tend to be uh, possibly a little bit more successful in protecting uh, their citizens from these, these type of events. So there's a, a, is there a figure, Michael, on what potentially we could spend and what we would have if you say if we ran a 1% deficit on top of that 6.7 billion? Well, the figure would be eye-watering. Uh, 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 I would suspect that it would be somewhere in the region of 12 to 15 billion euros. You could not spend that in one year. That, you know, uh, there just wouldn't be the uh, either the ec- economic or fiscal capacity. But that gives you a broad outline of the potential of the space that you have. So that's, wow, a, that's a almost key. doubling. You're saying potentially, as you say, I understand what you mean. Of course, you couldn't pump that money straight into an economy in one year. But that's the potential that would be there if we needed. Yes. Yeah, so if you figure there's going to be a surplus of 10 billion and, you know, they actually could run uh, a deficit of one uh, percent, which would be about another two and a half billion those are the kind of numbers you're playing with. That's the that that's the ground at which you start. So we shouldn't get too hung up about the six point seven. What we need to get hung up about is how effective uh, that expenditure is going to be. Yeah, uh, you know. Sorry. No, no. Continue. Yeah. No, I'm just sort of agreeing that in terms of the effectiveness of it, what it's going to, what use it's going to be put to. For instance, if you have, like Tom said, if you have tax cuts, uh, especially with the standard rate tax ban and other measures, uh, that's wasted money. That's essentially wasted money. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, if, you, uh, if, if you give everybody a three, 200, 400 euro credit on their electricity bills or their gas bills, well, you've got to question whether you know, that's a sensible w- approach because you're giving two or 400 euros uh, to say half of people who are not struggling. Uh, uh, or those on high incomes who don't need it. So, you know, what we have to do is find the effectiveness. I, I would just point out four areas just very briefly. And maybe yeah, we can go yeah, sure. First off is the energy price controls. Tom referred to that, you know, in some depth. Uh, you certainly, it's certainly an argument for bringing in energy price controls over the next six months, over the winter period. They, those can be temporary. Yeah. And you can then, after the end of that six-month period, you can take another assessment of what the energy situation is like in terms of uh, wholesale prices, uh, especially in the gas market. But you know, some form of energy price control. I know that you and I, Rory, have spoke about that. Spoke about Absolutely. this before. We did. Uh, indeed, yeah. The second thing is to raise income floors. Suzanne is correct. Twenty euros a week is what is needed to protect those on social protection from inflation. But by the way, they're not getting a real increase. They're just being protected, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, they're not getting much after inflation at all. But that, raising that and the minimum wage, a substantial increase in the minimum wage, that would actually increase wage floors. It would uh, uh, introduce more spending power in the economy because one of the concerns is that the inflation crisis will actually drive down consumer spending and that businesses will be caught in the worst of both worlds falling demand while inflation is rising. And the third element is to look and see what public services in the short term we can make more affordable. Public transport fares is you know, a, a really good example. So we could cut fares even further and they've been cut by 20%. We could look at childcare. There is an enormous scope to reducing uh, uh, you know, childcare costs. Uh, we could look at things like um, 
increasing the medical card threshold so that people can get free GP and medicine. I think some people will be surprised that, but for a single person, you have to have an income below 184 euros a week before you can get the medical card. Yeah. Now, the social protection payment is 208. I mean, that that's just that's just bizarre. Yeah. I mean, you have to be really poor to get a medical card. So you could substantially increase those things. You could bring in subsidies on prescription medicine. These are things that are actually commonplace in the continent. So reducing reducing uh, the costs of public services, raising the income floors, and putting some sort of control and ceiling on uh, the cost of electricity and especially gas over the next six months. Great, Michael. That's really, really useful and really interesting. Um, and important ideas there and proposals for what could actually be done. Um, Suzanne, to go back to you, is there anything specific in terms of the, I suppose, you know, you were talking about some of the responses in the media to you around the increasing of welfare. Um, and do you think that, I suppose, from a social, from Social Justice Ireland perspective and from that broad social justice perspective, that, you know, what could we actually do here that would make a substantial difference to protect people? Well, I mean, it it is. I think it's an acceptance that we live in a welfare state. What is it we want welfare to do? Mm. We want to fare well. We want to look after people. So we've had this sort of shift over the last, because if you go back 100 years, if you go back 150 years, if you go back to how societies were, were sort of, I suppose, structured, the family structure and then that's that changes and now we, it's work or die you know that's 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 the sort of system we currently work in so yeah. we didn't have a welfare system and if you didn't work you were out on your own if your family didn't look after you so we have a welfare system what is it we wanted to do i don't think we appreciate it for what it is i think we've we've residualized it same with social housing mm. same with with you know medical cards it, it is it's a sort of move away from the state as as the state has a duty of care towards its citizens. So I think if we accept that, if we accept that the state should be the person providing minimum floors of income, should be the people providing non-market housing, should be the people providing non-market education, non-market healthcare, all of that, that I think that, but again, that, that's a massive mind shift, I think. And, and we have, we've been encouraged, especially over the last 50 years, to think of people who are on social welfare as flawed. And I suppose as somebody who has signed on regularly over the last 35 years, you know, yeah. I'm the same person whether I was employed or not. Um, and the barriers to employment for me were different each time. They may have been educational attainment, they may have been transport, they may have been just general recessions, no jobs, whatever it was. So but I I think we we've 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 done something in our heads to you know, poor people, and they are somebody different. It goes back to your point, Rory, about half of us are doing okay, half of us aren't doing okay, and the half who aren't doing okay, the half who are doing okay really don't consider them to be, they're almost like a different species of, of person. But I kind of, I've loads of little bits written down here. You can stop me when I run over time. No, no, but go in, for it. But in terms of tax take, I mean, Ireland is one of the lowest tax take countries in Europe, we are an outlier. We're down mm. in the 20%. And I know as soon as you mentioned tax take, everybody 
inhales, big deep yeah. breath. They think of their they think of their wage slip, and then they get all oh, you know. But we we don't take enough tax in this country, and we need to broaden out the the conversation. So when you go into say our pre budget submission. We're talking about things like R&D credits. We're talking about special assignee credits. We're talking about, as Tom mentioned, all of the the tax that we forego, the revenue that we forego, and we never revisit, well, what is this tax incentive designed to do? And there was a Social Europe, I haven't finished reading the article, so I hope it sort of stays on the same theme, but it was looking at sort of progressive taxation across Europe. And the line Mm. is, it's no coincidence that economies which best combine economic dynamism and social inclusivity are those that collect the highest tax revenues as a proportion of national income. So tax is so important. It really is the key. How are we going to provide for all of these things if we don't take the tax? And it goes back to that thing of, Again, we're being fed this line as limited resources. Choices will have to be made. If I give it to you, I can't give it to you. If I give it to the schools, I can't give it to the hospitals, which again is nonsense because I kind of think if we go back to the state as provider, it all goes back to that. If you don't spend it in social protection to look after people across the winter, they will end up in A&E. If you don't build social housing, you end up paying HAP. HAP falls apart, you end up paying for it in social housing supports, you end up paying for it in the homelessness sector. If you don't build primary care centres, you end up paying for it in acute care health centres. So I'm fascinated by the, the disconnect, the lack of joined up thinking, this sort of siloed thinking that I think the budget sometimes reveals is, well, it's not coming out of my budget, so that's fine. Um, but if I don't spend it here, the Department of Justice will spend it. Or if I don't spend it in education, somewhere else will spend it. So it really needs to be, I think, much more connected, much more joined up about where we're spending it and what is it we're actually trying to do as a society, as a welfare state, rather than sort of just looking at it in those kind of those little columns to say, yeah. well, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm the sec gen, I have this much to spend. I mean, Michal Collins and the SVP did that amazing piece of work a couple of years ago looking at the cost of poverty and mm. what what it, what we actually spend on trying to fix the damage we've done. And you can't fix some of the damage. Think of all the kids now at the moment who are living in B&Bs and hostels and hubs. We have no idea the damage that's being done to them physically and well, mentally. Unfortunately, Suzanne, we do know. We, we, we do. Know. I mean, I, I, I did. It's not I did been a, costed, though. It it's isn't. not been included as well, a that's cost. It. You know, but I, I, mean, I, did, I did a research piece on hopes myself, but I'm talking about when they get to be adults. You oh, know, absolutely. We, we, yeah. we, don't, we don't know that. Like, we, we can see what we're doing to them as small kids. We can see what we're doing to them, as you said, in terms of crawling and chewing and basic things like that through mm. their schooling. But when they get to be 35 and 40 and 50, um, you know, so yeah. it, it's that. yeah, we don't we don't bring in that longer term cost of the damage that's done to people by being in poverty, by being in homelessness. And yes. I think you're you're absolutely right to make that point of, you know, the budget is presented in such a way that silos and that narrows choices, as Michael has pointed out there, you know, and, and Tom as well around the possibilities of the amount of money that's available. But I also think even that whole you're right to bring up the question. We always we've done it for years here on Reboot Republic and and broader in all the work we've been doing around policy analysis. Um, you know, from TAS to Neri to SIP2 and others around that whole um, question of what purpose does tax serve? And, you know, it's like it's very difficult, I think, for people in Ireland because our public services, some of them are so crap that people are like, why am I paying more tax 
for a service that I don't get. And you say, well, if we paid more in tax and if we ensured we had a proper tax system, we could provide, for example, universal childcare that would actually reduce your cost and individually reduce your cost. And it's it's because we haven't developed a proper welfare state that provides mm-hmm. not just welfare support, but actually, you know, services. And I think childcare is one of the biggest yeah. things like you'll hear them you know, that going on now about, oh, how can we, you know, cut people's costs? And I'm just screaming all the time at the TV and radio, bloody provide public childcare, you know, basically free of charge. And then you would be taking, you know, two grand a month of like myself and others and many others across the country who are spending like, you know, just astronomical amounts on things like childcare. And then also in terms of welfare, you know, the presentation of that, like, you know, you say, oh, incentivizing to work. You know, we look at the highest rates of deprivation in terms of people who are in receipt of welfare are lone parents, who many of whom are working and many of whom can't work or are limited because of the lack of childcare. And then in terms of people who have long-term illness or are minding someone because they, in terms of who has a disability um, or have caring responsibilities. And you're going, those people should be paid a wage not given like, you know, pittance of social welfare that our whole system is constructed wrongly about what we value. But anyway, um, I, I just, yeah, it, it's that presentation of that discussion. But I wonder in this budget, um, maybe to go back to you, Michael, in terms of, I suppose, the politics of this, um, that the, the government is under severe pressure and they know it. You know, they're falling massively in the opinion polls. Um surely they will have to do something more than just tokenism. People aren't going to accept. I know there's a cost of living protest on the 24th of September outside the doll. Um, and, you know, protests are likely to continue. You know, this adds to the housing crisis as well. And the issue is that they're going to be under a lot of pressure um, and people are unlikely to accept um, just crumbs at this point or tokenistic measures. What do you think in terms of the government itself and its likelihood to do something things significant or is that possibility there do you think for people to promote um and push them in a way that maybe they wouldn't you know ideologically like to go well i I think that is possible i mean let's take a look at a lesson from covid uh the government had to step in and uh subsidize huge sections of the private sector something that you know no conventional economist or a politician of the right or right of center would have ever envisioned doing but they did it they had yeah. to i think they now have to not only for just the 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 social reasons that have been outlined by suzanne but as you say the political reasons they have to do something quite dramatic now the key thing is always and you know you really don't get this on budget night this idea that you have to come out i understand it it's the news cycle but you've got to kind of you know make a a comment uh you know immediate comment immediate analysis on budget night Sometimes you have to wait two or three or four days, even longer, to find out what are their programs really doing? Uh, what is the actual effect of, of these uh, uh, new proposals uh, that they're putting in, in terms of how it impacts on different uh, uh, income groups and different social constituencies? Uh, as I said, if they stuck to the thing of you know putting some sort of cap on price controls, raising the wage floor, and reducing costs in uh, key public services or things like childcare, which should be a public service, as you pointed out, then 
those other things that they might want to do, they play around with this program or that program or this credit, uh, you can then make much more sense. My fear is you are just going to get a tsunami of numbers coming out and it's going to look really, really big. And the day afterwards, you know, after uh, uh, all the, the, the newsprint and the hours of time on the media, you find it really doesn't amount to that much. So they've got to reach these expectations, but they have to do so in a way that if, you know, that is an effective targeting. And right now, that means you're targeting about, I don't know, what, 30, 40, 50, 60 percent of the population. You know, because those are the people who are struggling, not just low, but on average incomes, which, you know, are uh, people, like you say, people paying child care, people having health care costs, the cost with children. And then all of a sudden their gas just goes, you know, goes the gas bills go to the roof. So it's going to be very difficult for them. Uh, but they have to ground themselves in kind of a fundamental approach. If they do that, then they can build, if you will, once you get that foundation down, then you can build a pretty sturdy, robust house. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Tom, um, uh, Michael, before we finish the podcast, I want to ask you about the SUVs. Tony said uh, you took on the SUVs of the country, so we'll have to talk about that. Tom, what would you? What tax measures would you introduce, or do you think the government should introduce? Do you mean, do you mean in budget 2023 or over yes. the next 10 years? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we can go back to that one later. Exactly. Yeah, Actually, just in terms of the budget, this budget. Because I was talking about the social and Michael about the political, and like I can talk about the economic and, and taxes we need. And, and I, I suppose just to Michael's point, Michael said it's going to be a difficult task. I actually don't think it will be difficult. It, it will require radical steps, but it's not it's not technically complex. Uh, the, the answer is there. We have the resources. We can do it. It's just do they have the will to do it? In terms of taxes. And of course, if we have some some select some selection of taxes in there, that means there's even more scope on public spending. Although, as Michael has pointed out, there are really no major constraints. Um, uh, well, a well tax, um, employer PRSI for for those over a hundred thousand, and then gradually reduce it down. Um, uh, inheritance tax, so CAT. I, I would I would introduce a tax on all inherited income above three thousand per year. And then and then bring it in at a higher rate above uh, capital gains tax or oh, loads of tax expenditures associated with capital gains tax uh, that you would get rid of. I would get rid of SARP. SARP is basically um, a policy that allows extremely rich people uh, coming from abroad to pay 28 percent income tax instead of 40 percent income tax. It also gives them free private schooling and, 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 and a free plane trip home there and back once a year. That's an abomination. It's egregious and should not uh, exist. Tom, Tom, yeah. what would happen to poor private schools if they weren't brought over? Because no one here now can afford them. Think of the private schools, Tom. Well, they can just become public schools, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, you don't need private schools at all. You know, it would reduce exactly, the stress. Exactly. They wouldn't have to worry about the income and all that coming in, you know. Join the, join the rest of society. Uh, so there's a lot of things that you could do. You, I, I personally would increase the property tax. I know that's controversial for some, but I, I think that needs to be very significantly increased over the next few years. Doubled, trebled, quadrupled. We should bring in a site value tax. Um, so there's, there's a whole load of different things. Not all of those you would do in budget 2023. In fact, very few of those things you would do in budget 2023. You'd also get rid of some of the, the most the more unwise tax breaks that we have out there, such as the help to buy scheme. 
you would gradually get rid of private health care and you would get, get rid of the tax breaks on private health insurance over the, over the next three, three to five years and so on and so on. There's so I'm much reform speci- that needs two, to be done. Two, two specific ones on tax. The real estate investment trust tax breaks, that would be a real one to get rid of, wouldn't it? Well, potentially, I, I, that's not one that I, I'm, I don't have the same level of knowledge about that particular one as, as you do, Rory. So I, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to comment too much, but I, 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 those kind of tax breaks, I see no inherent justification for them existing at all. Um, so my provisional position would be that they shouldn't exist. Yeah. Um, I, my own, my own view is that there should be no tax breaks whatsoever associated with housing. All of these things cause distortions, increase house prices, uh, increase demand. They shouldn't exist at all. And there's a lot of money to be saved there, which we could funnel towards social housing or cost rental housing. Of course. Um, of course. And, and it seems to me just on that question of, you know, this extra capacity and, you know, there's two things that we need to do uh, fundamentally. One is retrofit our homes and people now with the cost of living crisis, even less people can afford to retrofit their homes. So the obvious thing is you would put like you could put potentially up to a billion or two billion into retrofitting homes combined with setting up a state construction company to go build public and affordable housing like they're two things that it's not they're not going to add inflationary pressures they're actually going to reduce inflationary pressure pressures provide employment yeah Uh, and actually things like retrofitting are the type of yes it's ongoing it's going to go on for 10 or 15 years but but the whole to, to retrofit the whole housing stock is if you think about a, a one-time investment, everyone, they only need to be done once. So there is this debate about whether or not we should be using some of our corporation tax receipts as a rainy day fund. Well, we have a rainy day fund and it's called it's called a climate catastrophe. Uh, and I, I think putting some of that money into renewable energy infrastructure, charging points, retrofitting, particularly for lower income households, and, and measures like that would be the best the best use of that money. Spend it on capital for sure, but but I agree with you. I, I mean, Neary and, and other bodies have talked about the need for a state investment body for I don't know how long now. And part of that, of course, would be increased apprenticeships, training funds to get people into the construction sector. We had a lot of people leave the construction center sector after 08 or 09. It was seen as extremely volatile and uh, unsteady employment. A lot of people left left Ireland, of course, but we do have. Uh, a dirt of skills in those areas now, which which we will need to increase. And unfortunately, that it does take time to build up those skills, no pun intended. And therefore that is that is that is causing problems in terms of construction. What we could do is on the construction side is we could ensure that people aren't building hotels and commercial real estate and things like that quite to the level they are at the moment. And we could find a way to channel those people into into, into residential housing, for example. So that, that could be achieved through the tax system as well um, by having differential taxes on those two types of investment, for example, uh, to get construction workers into re- into into in, into building homes. And, and of course, building homes is an economic issue as well. We, 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 we want to bring in migrants. We, we want to open up opportunities for people to live in places like Dublin, Dublin and Cork. We can't do that because of the cost of housing. So it's a huge competitiveness issue. So it's, it's bad for the economy. So, so not investing is is a false economy, just like it's a false economy not to invest in childcare. And Suzanne made the point about high tax countries being the being 
being very effective. They're also and having the highest well-being, and that's true. And but they're also the most competitive countries in the world, yes. and that's because they're they think of public spending as investment. You're investing in childcare. You're investing in education. Any if you frame it that way to your right-wing capitalists, they'll understand what you're talking about. It, but it's this narrative that public spending is is wasteful, and uh, you know they don't see it as investing in a country or investing in the people of of a country. And that's the mistake that we continuously make. And unfortunately, many of the people that make the decisions are from certain political parties. Don't use public services that often because they get private healthcare, they get private education, uh, and so forth. And, and frankly, the cost of childcare is meaningless to them, just to, just as the cost of living crisis would be meaningless to them. So they don't value it the way that uh, people on low and middle incomes do, and that's part of their problem. Yeah, no, I, I really agree with that, Tom. You know, people ask all the time, how can you know governments do this? And I do think there's a real issue of just been utterly you know, insulated from the reality of people's lives and, you know, childcare and even basic transport costs and the retrofitting thing as well, just, you know, annoys the utter crap out of me, you know, going on about, you know, retrofit your homes and you're going, people haven't like a cent at the end of the week, not to mind at the end of the month to get a loan to do a house up. It's just utterly, it's, it's, you know, it's insulting. And of course, part of it back to what Suzanne was talking about, individualizing the responsibility for all these things. And of course, people internalize that then is there something wrong with me? I failed rather than seeing the responsibility on government. And the other thing is, um, Tom, a quick question just uh, to finish um, on in terms of your analysis, a wealth tax, what should it be? Well, first of all, there should be a wealth tax. There's there's many types of wealth tax, but there should be a wealth tax on all on all. There should be a net wealth tax on all households with uh, a wealth of one million or above. Um, it should be it should be set at a significant level, and it, it could it could quite easily bring in a few hundred million a year. In addition, there needs to be a much much stronger inheritance and gift tax. That's a wealth tax too. We need to get rid of all of the tax breaks associated with that. So the CAT. Uh, Again, business business release. So essentially, we have about one trillion, one trillion, not one billion, one trillion of net household wealth in Ireland, right? Yet the amount of money that we get from inheritance tax every year is about half of one billion. We don't have a net wealth tax at all, and our property taxes as well only brings in about half half a billion. So it's pathetic the amount that we tax capital assets, and 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 from an equity point of view, but also from an economic efficiency point of view. Those are the best taxes that there are. So tax land, tax net household wealth, tax inheritance and gifts, minimal economic impact would be beneficial in terms of land use. And indeed, the housing crisis would would push house prices down. Um, uh, There are no downsides associated with this. We should do it tomorrow. We should do it on September 27th. Um, it would be and it would be extremely popular. Well, some of those would be extremely popular. One or two of them would be pretty unpopular with certain cohorts. But um, there's no economic reason, no reason in equity not to do it. Uh, and hopefully, we'll see some movement in, in some in some of these areas. Uh, oh, Rory, so, great, sorry, great Rory, Tom, thanks. Yeah, yes, Michael. Yeah, if I could just come in on just one small thing, but obviously it's a big thing that that you were mentioning, say retrofitting. Yeah, uh, there's a very simple approach to retrofitting because uh, right now it's a series of uh, grants and people have to go through hoops. And basically, it's a subsidy to those on higher incomes because so much has to be paid for by the homeowner. What you can do is you can provide retrofitting free upfront, and then link the repayments 
in through through your income. In other words, it's based on your ability to pay. Yeah. Or you could link it through your 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 utilities bill in some way. But in other words, you're not paying it up front. It's linked to your ability to pay. You pay off the whole thing when you dispose of the house. The great advantage of that is, first off, you immediately reduce people's uh, um, uh, spending on utilities, uh, which means they can go and spend that money in the shops and businesses around the country. So it's a real kind of demand uh, uh, measure. Secondly, you reduce fossil fuels, which also has a benefit to the economy in terms of uh, overall national uh, uh, income. And actually, people start to have a better living standard because the house is warmer. And you could start targeting those buildings that are most in need, about 5 to 7% of housing where people live in are like G-rated, the worst you can do. You can start targeting those. But with a little innovation in these policies, you can take that expenditure as an investment. You will get repaid back over time. But the economic and social benefits begin to start from day one. That, you know, that's the type, you know, we can do that with a number of other programs. But a little bit of innovation in our thinking means uh, that we can take the money that we have and spread it a long ways down the road. Absolutely. And I think the importance of setting up a public construction company that would also be a construction and retrofit company yes. that could do those things like it's a public service like retrofitting you know the idea is talking to um the uh Cloda and um from the community law center and you're saying energy is a human right you know that now this is a situation whereby you know we need to ensure people have yes. access to retrofitting and access to warm safe homes across the board everyone should be able to have access to them and so it should be seen as a public service and of course if you have public construction doing it um, and a public construction firm you're going to reduce the inflationary impact as well from price gouging from private contractors and of course that's why the construction industry and all their lobbyists go hopping mad every time i mention state construction company on twitter if you want to see something to get the uh, conservatives and all sorts jumping up and down probably you're probably not quite as much as your suvs though michael your suv jeez oh, what did you do to them? Uh, I, I put up what I thought was going to be a very simple, straightforward, and commonsensical idea. That what because you know, reaching our climate change targets is going to take a lot of big steps, but a myriad of small steps, especially small steps, while the big stuff comes online, like renewable technologies, uh, takes you know years to kind of get wind farms off the coast and all that kind of stuff. So I made the suggestion that we should ban SUVs. And I did that on the principle that rather than try to tax them, because it means that, okay, you can tax them and there would be a reduction in SUV ownership, those people who could still afford the tax could drive around in this S- in these SUVs. Just one simple fact on SUVs, um, they represent the second highest contributor to carbon emissions. Uh, than any other sector bar power generation. The second largest between 2010 and 2020. This was the findings of the International Energy Agency, which they admitted shocked them. SUVs are the second biggest contributor to uh, uh, the climate thing. And the director said that actually the gains that we have been making from transitioning to electric vehicles have been cancelled because of the growth in SUVs. Over half of uh, new car registrations in this country are SUVs. 
Over so, half. Yeah, over half. Holy sugar yeah. balls. That's now, a lot of those, you know, a lot of those would be what are called crossover. So they're smaller, compact. They're not like the huge, humongous SUVs. Mm. So however you want to define SUV. So I said, listen, Bantam, you're not depriving people of transportation. They can buy the next, you know, most energy efficient. And so I thought it was quite commonsensical. And good Lord, uh, talk about stepping into a snake den. Uh, every SUV lover came throwing back on social media. And, you know, this was uh, this was totalitarian government. This was communist. Oh, you didn't take account of this model or that model or that model. All sorts of excuses were thrown out. At the end of the day, we've got to figure out how we get out of, you know, carbon dense transport, carbon dense housing consumption, all sorts of things. So I thought ban SUVs was, you know, uh, uh, a good idea. That's not an SUV parked out your back there, Michael, is it? Huh? No. That's not an SUV I see there. Uh, well, yeah, but it's it's not mine. Uh, uh, now, I hopefully... Listen, listen hope- I, I, I really, I can't believe you upset those poor SUV owners. My God, that's what a, what a thing. But it is interesting what people get up in arms over. Listen, unfortunately, we're going to have to finish up. Suzanne, last um, question to you, and it, it sort of, um, I hope brings this conversation around to uh, some sort of a conclusion um, in the sense that there's something that has been pushed for. I know Social Justice Ireland have been pushing it for many years and the budget, the government budgetary department introduced it. um, I think the the budgetary oversight office, this concept idea of well-being indicators and of measuring our economic development and the economy and society differently rather than using the crude GDP figures, which we know are completely don't measure things like well-being, which is, you know, the state of people's health, uh, you know, employ um, poverty, deprivation, you know, housing, all these sort of factors. It will uh, Has Ireland brought well-being indicators in any way meaningfully into our budgetary analysis or discussion or as a way to prioritize resources? Are you aware and about that? There is a framework in place and there has been, I think, one update on it um, earlier on this year. But but that is the key point, really, isn't it? Is that what measure, you know, what we what matters measured and what isn't matter, you know, if it's not measured, it doesn't matter, that kind yeah. of thing. And it's that, you know, the what did somebody say before? Uh, somebody who's going through a divorce and uh, has been diagnosed with cancer is good for GDP because that's obviously all generating um, activity, economic activity, you yeah, know, what I mean? consumption, but and, consumption, but it's not, yeah. it doesn't measure like what, what, what does that actually measure? Yeah. But it's, it's supposed it goes back to that whole thing as well about the, the public sphere, public goods. What, what do we want the state to do? And I often think as well, like, you know, when we're talking about back to Brown Thomas, if I want a designer handbag and I can't afford one, I can find an alternative in the private market. I think that's not the economist way, like buyer meets seller and agrees on a price and that's yeah. your optimum. Um, but obviously when it comes then to public goods, if I can't afford housing, are you now saying I can't have it? If I can't afford public transport are you saying i can't have it if, if if i can't afford health are you saying i can't have it so the fact that all this stuff is in so much of it is in the private market and so much of it has been monetized as you said you know housing um you know un- unless there's a profit element to it it doesn't even get off the the drawing table but 
I, I would hope so. I would hope so. I think, again, even the energy conversations, energy is such a new thing. Being able to capture and use electricity is such a relatively new invention. It's, what, 100 years, 120 years? And now we can't imagine our lives without electricity. So mm. should that also be a public good? I spoke to somebody there a while back, and in Limerick they were talking about a community-owned generator so it would go into the river there was two again low uh i suppose low income households that were connected to the river and that they would have this generator in the river this generator would actually create enough energy to provide for basic electricity for these two housing estates and the community would come together and own the electricity so yeah there are as michael said there's really 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 creative ways of coming at this you know moving away from energy being created in order to make a profit in order to um because again you've got to you know you've got to satisfy your shareholders but the thing about the climate conversation that always fascinates me is we have no problem picturing the dystopian fallout so our movies our culture we can see the dystopian stuff what we cannot seem to imagine is how to live our lives differently we, we don't seem to be able to manage as you said how, how am I going to get by without my SUV? How am I going to get by without a triple shot caramel macchiato in a, in a, in a takeaway cup? How am I going to get away with, you know, even things like, is, is it right that I can buy a punnet of kiwi fruit for 99p 365 days a week in a plastic tray wrapped in plastic? I don't know if that's sustainable. You know, it's those kind of conversations. We can't seem to imagine, we can't seem to imagine a future that we can actually create. We just seem to go straight to Mad Max or the road or, you know. Of course, of course a big reason in that is that's not what corporations want us to imagine. You know, and ultimately, yeah. you know, the, the consumption model of capitalism and the constant consumption of products and new products and, you know, the inbuilt obsolescence and all that, they, they do not want us to be able to imagine, you know, a low consumption, no growth uh, scenario where people might actually be happy to have time to spend with each other and focus on caring and focus on, you know, the things that actually matter rather than the, uh, the constant anxiety fueled consumption yeah. of social media. Um, can, but can, we'll, uh, can I just continue? check with, with Tom, Tom will tell me whether I'm right or wrong on this. Was it Adam Smith who reckoned we'd be working 15 hours a week at this stage because we would be able to provide for all our basic goods with much less output. Yeah. Was that Galbraith, Michael, who said that? No, it was John Maynard Keynes. John okay. Keynes. I'm completely wrong. <laughs> I just fixated oh, on the 15 hours and thought, yeah, I'll have a bit of that. That's no problem. But one last thing. Our article tomorrow on our website is exactly that piece as well about infrastructure as opposed to low tax take, about the competitiveness piece and where Ireland sits in, you know, in, in the broader spectrum as well about competitiveness and what what industry actually needs industry needs well-educated workers who are healthy who are happy um who have places to live that's what they need they don't need the tax breaks yeah and why is that is that going to be on the social justice ireland website Suzanne? in the morning yes yes so colette is well ahead of us all and this is her article that's written and ready to go uh so it, it's available for us in the morning on the website Great. but just it ties in nicely with what you've been saying brilliant brilliant people can check that out and also tom in terms of neary do you have your yeah. stuff up on the website in terms of pre-budget submission and that we don't have a pre-budget submission but uh we'll be in front of the oroctus budgetary oversight committee at 4 p.m uh on wednesday the 7th which is tomorrow uh, it's, it's going out so 
you can hear us then. Um, we also we also have our Donald Nevin lecture, which is the central bank, um, Sharon Donnery and Kevin Callan from Congress. They'll be debating wages and inflation. So that'll be everyone's welcome to come along. That's on Wednesday morning, the 14th of September. And we will have a post-budget review, which Michael will be taking part in. It's it'll be on the 5th of October. So it'll be the Wednesday af after the budget. But but we will we will be blogging quite consistently between now and the 27th. Uh, uh, good about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, uh, that's what's the website there of Neary? Oh, it's just uh, www.neary.com, I think. Um, <laughs> Tom, we might have to cut this out. Co-director does not know the website of his own <laughs> institute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I do, I do, I do. It's um, Michael. Come on, jump in there. Where, where is your uh, analysis? Are you, do you still have notes on the front? Oh yeah, yeah. That's the blog notes on the front. Um, Best uh, economic analysis, along with Neary and Social Justice Ireland uh, in Ireland. Well, uh, thank you. I do, I don't get as much time as I like to to uh, address the issues uh, because, you know, there's a lot of work in the trade union movement. We're gearing up for, you know, uh, making our demands on the living wage and the minimum wage. Uh, and childcare as well, doing great work on that too. Yeah, the Big Start campaign uh, made up of ch childcare workers. So there's been, you know, a, a, a lot of work being done. Uh, I just say this, I think this is an excellent opportunity for trade unionists, for progressives uh, to intervene in these debates, because at the end of the day, the government has it, it has very few new ideas about how to tackle this outside of throwing money at, at the thing. And I think just that example, the very small example that Suzanne had there of uh, community-owned energy, where, my God, you produce energy, you know, without a profit. You, you produce energy for use. What a what a novel idea. Uh, what would happen if we started doing that across the country? You know, these are the type of innovative thinking that we will need, especially in, in the context of climate change. And I can only see one source uh, for those innovative ideas, and that's on the left. But we've got to start getting down, getting the work done, working with each other, regardless of party, regardless of union, working with each other and promoting these ideas. If we do that, you know, I think that, you know, we will reap the benefits of it. Yeah. And Rory, that website is www.nerinstitute.net. -E uh, <laughs> that's a long ways from your first offer, from your first try. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I was caught on the half. What are you going to do? You were, you were you were in midstream thinking about wealth taxes and uh, i was so i'm always thinking about it was wealth an awful <laughs> awful thing to, for me to put you on the spot suzanne what's the social justice ireland website but i think you have the computer open in front of you so you're cheating socialjustice.ie it's very easy and do you know what thought keeps going through my head is that childcare is probably more expensive than a private education so in terms of if you were going to spend what 12 1300 quid a month um, to have a child in a Montessori or a creche, a private school wouldn't be, probably wouldn't cost you as much. What's your point? That I should be <laughs> sending my kids straight to private education, not to creche? 
<laughs> if if the private schools are going to find it difficult to uh, to recruit once we get rid of SARP, the forty five million will 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 uh, will save by getting rid of SARP. They can and, open uh, up to two year olds and three year olds to come straight into <laughs> private education. To become Leinster rugby players. <laughs> oh, stop! I I think though that that's I I yeah I'm thinking of that. It's uh yeah it's so. God. The other thing we didn't mention, but which will be coming up, which I want to plug, is we'll be having a podcast on uh, two or three podcasts in the coming um, week or so on housing and homelessness. And I didn't discuss it too much today for that reason that uh, we'll be having dedicated podcasts. So we'll be having Hugh Brennan from O'Coolan. We'll be having um, Louise Bayliss from Focus Ireland and Spark and Colette Bennett from Social Justice Ireland as well. Um, and also Ono Brin, um, opposition spokesperson on housing for Sinn Féin uh, in the coming. So you keep, uh, keep an eye out for that and ear out for that. Listen, thank you so much, everyone. It was great. Great to chat to you. Thank, thank you. you. And that was Suzanne uh, Rogers from Social Justice Ireland, Michael Taft from SIP2 and Tom McDonald from Neary. Um, and we will. Yes, that's there. So please, if you can, there is a cost of living protest. Um, and coming up before the budget and also you can check out the the different policy uh, alternatives there and thanks so much everyone for listening thank you so much to our patrons who keep the this show on the road we are um reboot republic produced by tortoise shack media if you can go over to patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack become a patron and the listeners are out there listen we really appreciate everyone who does um listen to us and you know it takes the time as well which people are doing sharing around the podcast link on social media you can just copy it from spotify share it around let people know you're listening um and let us know of course if you have any comments and yeah so listen we'll talk to you all very soon thank you so much